0: Today on the University Podcast, you are about to listen to part one of three in our lecture series entitled Racist, Sexist, Anti-Gay. And in these lectures, Keith, Darrell, and I will be analyzing current cultural trends related to social justice. We each give 15 to 20 minute presentations, followed by a time of student question and answer. If you are in the Moscow, Idaho area and want to join us, we meet on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. at the MZ Building. You can find more information information about this on our CRF Facebook page. Enjoy the show. This isn't a sermon, exactly, but I'm a preacher, so it's probably going to sound like one. Um, So let me begin by just reading a text that I I want to frame uh, my talk, Keith's talk, and really this whole series. So this is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 6. These are the words of God. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all obedience when uh, all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let me pray for our time now. Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, the weapon of your word. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. We thank you that you have seated us with Christ and that in him we reign. We reign with you. I ask that you would give us wisdom and insight and uh, guard us from error as we tackle uh, some hard topics uh, that uh, are emotionally charged right now in our culture. So give us wisdom now, in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Uh, The hope is that there will be some Q&A time at the end of uh, both Keith and I's presentation. So I'm going to give about a 15-minute presentation, then Keith, and then... We'll open it up for questions. My announcement was going to be, uh, I was going to give you a phone number to text in questions, but unless someone has the MZ Wi-Fi password, which if you have that, come give it to me, uh, for future weeks, um, you'll have to just raise your hand and uh, be vocal if you do have questions. And this is part one of three. So uh, in that third one, we will probably do just Q&A. And we'll, and we'll actually also have some questions for you guys. So, we're hoping this series will be interactive. Okay, let's get into it. Racist, sexist, anti-gay, Douglas, Douglas Wilson, Wilson, go away. <laughs> uh, in April of 2012, Pastor Doug gave two lectures entitled, Sexual by Design at Indiana University in Bloomington. Prior to these lectures, materials were distributed by protesters in order to discredit him and disrupt the event. They pulled quotes from his blog and books. They made signs in protest. Some of them even drew bruises and wounds on their bodies to demonstrate that Doug's words were in fact an act of violence, causing physical harm. You can actually watch these events on YouTube. You go on Canon Press's website or in Darren Doan's film, Free Speech Apocalypse. Uh, I, I highly recommend you watch that. Um, and it records uh, more of this event. Um, at one point in that evening, the protesters yelled that they supported free speech, but that what was happening at this event was hate speech. So different category. And so the chants continued. Racist. Sexist, anti-gay Douglas Wilson go away. Now, uh, Doug describes this event as, quote, running into the tolerance buzzsaw. The tolerance buzzsaw. And we see this kind of thing happening more and more in our culture today. Maybe you have run into this buzzsaw amongst your friends or family members. And what these instances reveal is that tolerance actually means, for them, total conformity to whatever... They say diversity actually means uniformity. Equality actually means treating people differently. As Orwell says in Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal. And this is the fruit of social justice, civil rights, activism, and our current identity politics. And there's a long and complicated history for how we ended up here. But let me give you just two more examples, more recent ones, of this tolerance buzzsaw. And I want you to think if maybe you've encountered similar instances. (laughs) Uh, So I'll give you two examples, one with gender and then with race. First, with gender. Uh, Maybe you heard there was an engineer at Google who was fired for, quote, perpetuating harmful gender stereotypes. What were those stereotypes, you ask? Well, he said that the biological differences between men and women may account for why there is not 50% representation of women in tech and leadership roles. So maybe you've heard about things like the wage gap or why there isn't more women in tech. And there's whole conferences and movements to get more women in tech. And so Google's like, why, why don't we have this? And this guy's just, just you know, thinking out loud here. He wrote this memo suggesting there might be some biological reasons for this. Uh, so let, let's see what... Some of those reasons were, Uh, and I don't know if this guy was a Christian or not. I don't, I don't think he was, so you can feel free to disagree with these, but these are the examples he gave Uh, women on average have a stronger interest in people rather than things, which is why women prefer jobs. And he says social or artistic areas more focused on aesthetics, whereas men prefer things like coding, systematizing things. They are more drawn to ideas and concepts. Women are also, he says, more agreeable and less confrontational and direct than men. Okay, why are you guys laughing? (laughs) Uh, And and Jordan Peterson, really, uh, in that famous interview that went viral, points this out. Women are more agreeable and less confrontational. So, if you've ever, I guess most of you haven't yet, but at some point, you may negotiate your salary. And you have to sit down and say, all right, here's what I think I'm worth, here's what I think you should pay me. And men are more likely to essentially Be uh, what you might call rude or direct and just say, pay me this or I'm out. Whereas women tend to not do that as much. So he says maybe this explains some of the the wage gap. He also says women are also more anxiety prone with less stress tolerance and prefer lower stress jobs. Whereas many men are more willing to sacrifice their well-being for higher status, money, etc., Now, whether you agree that he's right about those things or not, uh, this used to be called simply having an opinion. But for Google, this is sexism. This is perpetuating harmful gender stereotypes. This is male privilege, and it is oppression. And so, what happened to him for thinking these things? They fired him. And if you think about even the concept of a stereotype, it means that most people thought that before. Right? So you actually were in the majority of people thinking this, and now he's, he's becoming, uh, Google's trying to create uh, them as a mi- minority. Um, another example I saw just a couple days ago, and maybe you have seen this too, was a recent Black Lives Matter protest in which the protesters were saying that if you don't put your fist up in solidarity with them, then you are a white supremacist. And there's this lady who's just, you know, sitting at a, at a table, and she just refuses to do this. So she's uh, being yelled at by mostly, white pe- by mostly white people, saying that if she doesn't put her fist up, uh, she is a white supremacist, and they're chanting in the background, uh, no justice, no peace, white silence is violence, they say. So remember that. Words, silence, or lack of words is for them, violence. So that's happening in our world right now. Have any of you guys encountered this before? Maybe in your family, friends, social media. Can I I just see a rate? Am I talking to people who are totally insulated from these (laughs) events? Okay. Now um, uh, that's happening in our world. And at the same time, we also have a bunch of churches that are all about social justice. Many have self-identified as woke Churches And the question used to be, you know, is that a spirit-filled church? Is that a talking in tongues church? Is that a conservative or a liberal church? But now the question is, is that a, a woke church or not? And whole churches are splitting over these issues. Um, Eric Mason, he's a pastor who wrote a book called Woke Church. So maybe he's the one who kind of coined this movement. Um, and there's this other guy named Ligon Duncan. And uh, maybe you know who he is, but he's a prominent PCA conservative, for the most part, pastor. So people say, you know, Tim Keller's liberal, and Ligon Duncan's like the conservative one. And uh, Ligon Duncan wrote the foreword to this book, Woke Church. It's a book that I I have read. Um, Books also, um, like White Fragility and How to Be an Anti-Racist, are on the top 20 best-selling books on Amazon right now. And as I was researching this, I thought, okay, I wonder what's number one. Any idea what number one number one book is, best-selling book right now on Amazon? That, that's up there. Michelle Obama's book has been up there for a while. Now um, this, this is a book that I guess I had seen, but I didn't really know anything about. And I had the fun time of researching it. I thought, oh, this is perfect for, for you. Uh, so it's a book called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Has anyone, has anyone heard about this? Okay, a few people. Uh, so I hadn't heard about this because I'm a Christian, and I, and I saw this... just kidding. Um, So so this is a book by Glennon Doyle, which is all about liberation and female empowerment. I I ordered it so I could read it, and and I'll tell you more about it once I do. But I thought, okay, what is this book about? What's the hype? So I just read some of the reviews so I could get a a feel for it. And uh, one person says, this is a testament to self-love with an endearing coming-out story at the center will delight readers. That was Publishers Weekly. Uh, they call it a book about liberation, and I think they call her, like, the patron saint of female empowerment. So, I mean, we're attaching religious significance to this, and, and if you notice, as you read these reviews, there's this language of freedom and liberation that constantly comes up. Something that used to be associated with, like, actual slaves going free, now applies to 40-year-old white women, apparently. Get Get liberated. Now, I was wondering, okay, who is this Doyle? And I, this is a must read for self-love. So who, so who is this woman? So I looked it up. Doyle uh, used to be married and has three kids. She has three kids, okay, she's divorced. Maybe there's a good reason for that. But apparently now she's married to a woman. Like, I guess like a famous MLS or, or women's soccer player. And uh, apparently that woman also used to be married to a different woman. So So she's divorced from her husband, has three kids, And so, I'm guessing the coming out story is that. Alright, so I'm thinking, what is uh, female empowerment? What is being untamed? Apparently, it's being able to divorce your husband, I guess be bisexual, and marry another woman. That's the number one bestseller right now. So, someone is buying these books and reading them. So... There's wokeness on race, there's wokeness on gender, there's wokeness in the world, and there's even wokeness in the church. I actually uh, used to be a part of and helped plant a church that would now be considered a woke church. We were all about um, uh, being multicultural and racial reconciliation. And so this is something that I've been thinking about, wrestling with, having conversations with people. I still am friends. I know these pastors and just disagree with them. But I used to be in this world all the time. And I've been thinking, okay, what does social justice actually mean? And that's kind of what I want to tackle in uh, this series, Keith and I, together. I want to help you start to think more biblically about race, social justice, when the next cop shooting happens, what should you think about that? What should we think about Glennon Doyle's uh, book in Female Empowerment? How should we think about it? Um, there are really real injustices in this world, and Christians should fight them. And it's really easy for you to just say, the world's going crazy, I'm just going to do my thing. But, you know what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that word righteousness is the same word for justice. Okay, So, inherent in being a Christian, is seeking first God's kingdom, and with it, not the world's righteousness, but God's righteousness. Not the world's justice, but God's justice. And so we need to start thinking about what is biblical justice, and how should we bring that to bear on issues like race, gender, and so on. So, um, I want to start with a question for you. Uh, When someone calls you racist, sexist, anti-gay, as they called Doug, What is the unifying thread that holds those things together? Racism, sexism, anti-gayism. The people that are doing this. Is there a common denominator there? So I'll just give you a sec. Does anyone want to just hypothesize why race, sex, anti-gay, why these are all kind of together as an issue? Jane? Because it all points to your identity. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it all points to your identity. Other ideas, or does anyone want to elaborate on that, besides Keith, because that's probably like your whole talk? <laughs> Any other ideas? Yeah, Thomas. There, are uh, minorities, we have been in minorities. Okay. Yeah, so the funny thing, Vodi Bachum came out here and gave a talk called Why Gay is Not the New Black, and he pointed out something that I never thought about. He's like, there's more women in America right now, and yet they're treated as a minority <laughs> class. And I was just like, yeah, that's true. They're... they're numerically the majority but they're having this minority status. Good. Any other maybe one more person? Yeah, Esther Uh here a lot of how they are the oppressed groups. Okay. Yeah, so that kind of goes on along with minority. So you're being subju- subjugated or oppressed by a majority culture. Okay? Ooh, good answer. I guess I don't have to give this talk. You guys are you guys are well well informed. <laughs> Um, so I think I think those are good explanations and correct. Um, I think there are a few other explanations, some historical. Uh, the way civil rights and second-wave feminism unfolded in the 60s. There's a whole historical argument for how we got here. Um, There's also the whole uh, project that was begun and continues uh, with critical theory, which uh, Keith and I will probably talk more in depth about later on. Uh, But tonight, what I want to do is just give you a really simple and short biblical religious framework for understanding what is happening in our culture right now. So, here's the principle I want you to take home and internalize as you do cultural analysis, as you are being trained up as uh, adults to go capture culture, you need to be able to read what's happening. And so take this principle to heart. Whenever there is a change in the laws of a land, so we had a Obergefell, same-sex marriage is a thing now. So whenever there's a change in the laws or morality of a land, there has most certainly been a change in the gods. Okay? So religion is the fountainhead, and law, culture, music, movies, all those things are downstream from it. So if you're, if you're downstream and you're saying, these are the movies, these are the laws we're making, you should look and think, what is the God that is the source of all of these downstream effects? Okay, So we need to think Christianly. Religion is upstream from everything, and this is because God created us in his image, and we are therefore inherently and inescapably religious. We are inherently worshiping creatures, and everyone all the time is worshiping someone or something. And Psalm 115 says that you are becoming like whatever thing you are worshiping. Cultures, more and more, become like whatever God they are worshiping. Now back to my question, how would I answer what that unifying thread is? And I want to argue that the common denominator that ties these woke ideologies together, that explains why those books are on the Amazon bestseller list, and why those students in Bloomington chose the labels of racist, sexist, and anti gay to silence Pastor Doug, the common denominator there is a common religious commitment to humanism. Humanism. Humanism is the religion of fallen man. It has many manifestations, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Atheism. Those are all humanistic. From a biblical perspective, you either worship the one true and living God, or you worship idols. And what is man's favorite idol? Himself. Himself. Uh, my mother in law is an amazing woman, and my wife tells me that growing up, if the girls were spending too much time in front of the mirror getting ready, she would tell them, Stop worshiping yourself. <laughs> right? Stop worshiping yourself. And I love her for that, right? Uh, uh, let me give you a sample of humanism from the humanists themselves. Don't just take my word for it. Um, I'm going to read you a a series of quotes from a guy named Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a a French philosopher, novelist, and activist, and he died in 1980. And he says in a talk he gave in 1946 called Existentialism is a Humanism, the following. So here's your your dose of humanism from Jean-Paul Sartre. He says, there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. Man simply is. End quote. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. All right, that's like a, a Nike slogan or something. Right? Uh, he he says Dostoevsky once wrote, If God does not exist, everything would be permitted. And that for existentialism is the starting point. And if indeed existence precedes essence, there is no objective reference point for human nature, then man is free. Man is freedom. Uh, In response to a man trying to decide uh, whether to go to war or stay back and care for his mother, Sartre tells him this, you are free, therefore choose. That is to say, invent. No rule of general morality can show you what you ought to do. (laughs) You should go to this guy for advice. He says, invent. And then he goes on and says, if I have excluded God the Father, there must be somebody to invent values, uh, referring to himself. So there's no God. You invent your values. Now here he gets poetic. In life, a man commits himself, draws his own portrait, and there is nothing but that portrait. It goes on. Life is nothing until it is lived. (laughs) There you go. But it is yours to make sense of, and the value of it is nothing else but the sense that you choose. So this is Sartre. And for Sartre, man makes sense himself. There is no God. And so he says, man is free. There is no God to give laws or define morality or even human nature. So man can invent his own laws and morality and define who he wants to be. And this is not a new idea. This is the oldest lie, the oldest idea. It's what Satan tempted Adam and Eve to do, to become their own gods, to to determine and judge for themselves what is right and wrong In the garden, Satan offered us something. He offered us autonomy, liberation, freedom from God's oppressive garden. How dare God say, I can't eat from that tree? Aren't all trees equally good, right? Didn't God create it? This is oppression. This is the lie of the enemy. There is a little atheistic existentialist. There is a little humanist in every human heart. Humanism is the religion of your sin nature and your sin nature continues to lust for autonomy, for independence from God. And this has created an entire industry of people to sell you those lies. The white fragility books, the how to be anti-racist books, untamed. This is all religious propaganda for humanism. So to summarize, what is humanism? Humanism is the religious belief that man is ultimate and not God. Man is lawgiver and not God. Man is creator and captain of his own destiny and not God. And that is the religion, that is the common denominator driving our cultural revolution on race, gender, and gayness. Uh, Next time I'm going to draw the lines for how humanism and social justice are connected. Uh, But for now, I'll hand it off to Keith Darrell uh, for the next portion. Thank you.
1: I have a. All right, never mind. I had a phone call coming in, and I was. I wanted to record myself. So if I get talking, we'll be here for a while. So I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to keep it tight. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Keith Durrell. Um I do open air preaching on colleges, uh, colleges on college campuses. So I'm usually traveling around the United States preaching at this point. But right now, with the COVID and the Rona and all that sort of jazz, uh, not really hitting the road. I was in Bozeman uh, this week, which was actually a really good. Uh, Really good meeting, especially all things considered. Uh, there were some students who were pretty humble and pretty open to the uh, reception of the gospel. Um, so, Lord willing, I'll get back there. And I might try to get out to University of Idaho. If you're a University of Idaho student, uh, Lord willing, sometime here in the next um, week or two, I'll, I hope to get out there. Uh, yeah, there's a lot there that Aaron's covering. And what I'm going to cover, um, I might have bit off too much. And so I'm going to try to give you guys pegs along the way to kind of like... Um, get us up to speed with where you are have you guys heard the expression cultural marxism no. okay yeah i it's it, and it's one of those things like uh you feel like it's thrown around all the time especially feel like even like woke it's almost like a slanderous term now you're just like oh they're cultural marxists or they're woke and it's just kind of a way to kind of dismiss people uh, but what i hope to do is show um basically they're effective uh the cultural marxists were effective and so the talk's kind of called cultural marxism and the long march is uh, what I'm going to be discussing. And so when Aaron brought up the topic of uh, racist, sexist, anti-gay, me preaching on a college campus, I don't think a single day has gone by in the last 10 years I've not been called a ra- racist, sexist, homophobe is usually what I'm called. And what's kind of fascinating to me was in 2016, I felt like there was a huge upheaval in our culture. I was preaching out at Washington State University, and uh, it was the first time, like uh, I think Bruce Jenner became... Sally? What's her? What is it? <laughs> What is it? Caitlin. 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 It became Caitlyn Jenner. And um, and that was like, and, I, and that was at the beginning of the year. And one of the things that was really funny at that time that no one knew what to do with, you had Rachel Dolezal, who's up at Spokane, <laughs> who was like the white girl leading the NAACP. And so, like, here's Bruce Jenner becoming Woman of the Year, and then Rachel Dolezal is being sold out. And I, I, and my hunch is there's more in common between a white woman and a black woman than there is a white man and a white woman, uh, biologically and all that that entails. So, um... That was kind of fascinating. So I'm preaching out at uh, Washington State, and it was the first time I heard that there were 66 different genders. And I'm, I'm just preaching, and a girl's mad at me for believing in male and female. And I honestly, I had never heard this before. And she and she blurts out, there are, how dare you, there are 66 different genders. And, uh, and I, I go, 67's too liberal, 65's too conservative. And she goes, uh don't know. <laughs> so she, she just heard 66 and she was running with it she had, she had no idea where she got that number from but that's what she was going with and um, and so I was preaching in Southern California and uh, this was at, I believe it was Cal State Fullerton and it was a pretty good pretty good meeting and I was finishing up my day and uh, I, I just kind of made the comment a little bit offhanded. I was like oh if you become a Christian you just got to prep yourself to be called a racist sexist homophobe and everyone there laughed like, mm-hmm, like believer or non-believer and I was like Aha! Huh, like I was kind of thrown out because I get called that every day, but I wasn't expecting everybody there to kind of basically be in agreement. Like, yes, that is the identity of a Christian. So when you guys go into evangelism and stuff like that, you're sitting there going, "I'm not a racist, sexist, homophobe," but to the <laughs> average person who disagrees with you, you are a racist, sexist, homophobe. So uh, you have to think through that when you go to evangelize. And uh, for me, kind of the whole 2016 was a big thing. That was obviously election year. Uh, so it was right around this time four years ago. I'm preaching at Colorado State University. And I can't help but to imitate. It. I'm not trying to mock. I, I don't know how to do this. So there's a kid comes out, and I'm preaching, and he, he has his giant frappuccino, something like that, and he yells out, uh, "You're out here preaching Christian supremacy, which is white, male, heteronormativity." takes a second, like he really got me, and I was like, "Well, and I was like, well, there's no doubt I'm preaching Christian supremacy. Let's be very clear about that. I don't think it has anything to do with being a white, which in turn is racist, male, so sexist." Or, or heteronormativity, which is like homophobia. So I'm putting forward straight sex, hetero. Uh, other uh, straight sex being normal, and uh, and, and so he, uh, so I was like, all right, I'm, but I'm willing to take all those charges. I'm willing to be a racist, sexist, homophobe. I'll do all of that if you're just willing to admit that you're out here preaching secular supremacy, which is black, androgynous, homonormativity. And he just goes, I guess so. And, uh, and so, so I was like, all right, end, end of the debate, I guess. Um, and, and so so you had that. And then that weekend, Hillary Clinton. Is I didn't even say anything. Uh, So Hillary Clinton uh, is campaigning, and she gave her famous... uh, You know, to be uh, grossly uh, generalistic, uh, you put half of Trump supporters into a category. They're racist, they're sexist, homophobes, they're Islamophobes, and blah, blah, blah. And so all these categories were kind of lumped in together as she was presenting it. And then... That next week, and, and here's the thing for me that was like, okay, something's in the water, and it was obvious because I'm hearing it every day, but that following week, our federal government, uh, like the Human Civil Rights Commission, I think is what it was, uh, U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, uh, came out with a thing called Peaceful Coexistence, and if you Google U.S. Uh, Civil Rights Commission and Peaceful Coexistence, you'll find um, you'll find this thing, and what was interesting in there is the Guy, who was like the chairman of it, he says this. The phrases, and so this is in the context of, so like if, if you're familiar like in Indiana when uh, some of the homosexual stuff was being pushed, was and, nice. sorry, um, I don't know why it's talking to me. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, and the, what Indiana was appealing to was their religious liberty, and that's why we're able to you know, discriminate in our hiring processes. In, in their words, we'd be discriminating between uh, a heterosexual and a homosexual, and they were uh, used in the context of religious liberty, and religious freedom. So uh, the the gentleman, the the chairman, whose name is Morton Castro, says, the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any form of intolerance. Religious liberty was never intended to give one religion dominion, Huh? Yeah, it was. Uh, well, give one religion dominion over other religions, or a veto power over uh, the civil rights and civil liberties of others. However, today, as in the past, religion is being used as both a weapon and a shield by those who are seeking to deny others equality. Um, and so, if you take that, and then Aaron mentioned the. Um, the lady who wasn't raising her hand, she was being berated by a bunch of people. Uh, if, if, I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly, I saw several clips, but you can hear them yelling, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? <laughs> and, and so like, it's just fascinating how all this stuff is kind of bundled up. And so you have to be prepared to be like, here's all of this stigma to you as a Christian. And so how do you go out and interact with people who uh, radically disagree with you on all those fronts? And so kind of like tied into humanism, like what is this all related to and what it's all about? It is, it boils down to power. Every discussion you're going to have if you're doing evangelism on a college campus um, is ultimately going to turn into kind of the grand says who. Um, but everything is perceived as power dynamics. And what that basically looks like is in our culture, even right now, if you hear the term whiteness, um, it's not really about you being white. It's about the society that your ancestors have constructed around white. And so you had these privileges as white people. That's why they would just say, well, there's white privilege, because the laws and everything else are constructed by white men particularly. Therefore, you can smash the patriarchy. You can deconstruct whiteness. The last question is, can white, like the woke church will ask, can white people, or can whiteness be saved, or can white people be saved? And so you kind of have all these categories that they're kind of working through. And so what I want to talk about is, in short, uh, kind of cultural Marxism and kind of how we got a little bit to the place where we are. And obviously in 10 minutes I'm being grossly, whatever Hillary said, grossly yeah. reductionistic is what I'm being. Um, but to get there, uh, let me just say that, that you want two ideas in your head if you're college students, even if you're not college students. Uh, one of those terms is modernism, and then the other term you're probably more familiar with, or at least hear more often, is postmodernism. A very common term, here, every day on a college campus, um, or it's at least being thrown about. And so for modernism, the basic idea is that there is uh, reason and science uh, provides accurate, objective Reliable foundation of knowledge, and so for the modernists, they want to be scientists, and they're like, "Nope, this is the way the real world is, and we understand the real world." And reason, kind of the age of reason, set us free, and so they're throwing off the traditions of Christianity. They're throwing these things off, and man himself being the measure of all things, but he was he was still kind of a de facto god at this point. And then um, go on that reason transcends and exists independently of our existential historical cultural context. Now, that's pretty key. So when you think of modernism, think of reason that this, this faculty called reason is this universal faculty that transcends and exists independently of our existential historical cultural context. It is universal and true. Now, where the postmodernist comes along and kind of just as the, uh, the enlightenment and the modernists threw off God and they enthroned reason, the postmodernist, kind of starting with Nietzsche a little bit, uh, comes along and just kind of throws off reason. See, and there's a guy named Richard Warty who says that the Enlightenment treated reason as a quasi-defined faculty, and the postmodernist comes along and says that's simply not there. That's why you often feel like you're having irrational discussions with people, like when someone's like, not to be crass, but like, you know, you're you're like you're a man, and they're like I'm a woman. You know what I mean? And like it just seems inherently contradictory. Uh, just as Rachel Dolezal, everybody knew it was a contradiction, but somehow with the man woman thing, that's because they want all of our thinking to have been socially constructed. There is no real thing called reason that you ought to submit to. All you have is the way white people think or the way wh- black people think or the way women think. That's why every single day on campus, I'm an effing white male. And, and that just shows like, I just show up and I'm imposing all my beliefs on other people as the white male. Um, and, but on the flip side, the obvious problem with that is, well, why should we listen to the black female? Why should we listen to the white female or the trans? or the well, if, if, if all we're doing here is a power game, why should anybody's why should you guys be muted? You know what I mean? Just lean into it. That that's kind of the a little bit of the point is you have to uh, learn to lean into that thing. And so um so so if you just get like the basic idea of modernism, postmodernism, and then we, we have this guy named Karl Marx. And so if you're gonna use the term cultural Marxism, the reality of it is it's not really that related to Marxism. Uh if if you take Marx in the purest sense, it's not. Um but uh, one thing that's kind of interesting is, is Marx was kind of in between being a modernist and a postmodernist. And what I mean by that is he thought there was this universal story that history was class struggle. You had the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, and all of history up to this point has been class struggle. So there's a universal narrative of what it means to be a human being and be particip- participating in this world. Um, but on the flip side, he also int- like really pushed home this idea of ideology. And so when people get woke, what you kind of had were people who were... Uh, they were locked into their class consciousness. And so you had the bourgeoisie who basically hypnotizes everybody. And so the proletariat's sitting there and they're not woke to their condition of being slaves because uh, they're, they've been educated by the bourgeoisie. They're the ones who control all the means of production and everything else. And so basically everybody's kind of have uh, been brainwashed by them, but then they become woke to their situation and then set free. So uh, with that, as a little bit of a backdrop, uh, this is uh, Frederick uh, Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto with Marx. Um, he, and it's kind of funny, they have this catechism, it's called Principles of Communism. It's basically like a WCF for commies. Um, and, and so the question is, uh, uh, what is communism? Communism is the doctrine of the conditions of the liberation of the proletariat. And so basically it might sound fancy, but all it is is saying, look, the proletariat, they're enslaved. This whole proletariat class, they're, they're enslaved to the bourgeoisie. And what communism does is kind of tying to what Aaron was saying, was throws us off to be free. So how can we get the, these oppressed people to be free? And what's interesting is one of their catechism questions is, in what way do proletarians differ from slaves? The slave is sold once and for all. The proletarian must sell himself daily and hourly. The individual slave um, the individual slave, property of one master is assured in existence, however miserable it may be because of the master 's interest. The individual proletarian property, as it were, of the entire bourgeois class, which buys his labor uh, only when someone has need of it, has no secure existence. The existence is assured only to the class as a whole. And so I, I read all that from this standpoint, that you know, in our heads, hopefully... Uh, you think when you think of Marxism or communism, you're like evil, bad. Um, but if you can put yourself in their shoes, what they think they're doing is a liberation project. And so, like, if you can try to be, give somebody the benefit of the doubt, you're sitting there going, okay, the Marxist has a, a liberation project. And all of us can agree that there is oppression in the world. That there are people who uh, even you know look after the orphan and the widowed and don't oppress people. Like, there's tons of that all throughout Scripture. So we can agree in a sense with what the Marxists are saying. The problem with the Marxists is really the whole way that they're kind of structuring the debate, which we'll uh, get into a little bit more in our next discussion. But but where the uh, cultural Marxism comes in is this. So, uh, the, I can't remember where this quote is from, but it says, Marx and Engels discuss ideology as the ideas of the ruling class intended to distort or mystify how they're exploiting and oppressing the proletariat. And so uh, so what is Marx? Uh, so what is cultural Marxism? At the About 100 years ago, you had a group of men. uh, They weren't all connected, but probably the main name you may have heard was a guy named Antonio Gramsci. And the fascists put him in a prison in Italy, and he was this hunchback guy, and he's supposedly a genius. And he probably did more damage being in prison because he just wrote these books that now influences everybody. Uh, And if you've ever heard the expression hegemony, uh, it was around before that, but he really kind of gave that. What the hegemony is is... Basically, in, in our circles, maybe if you're familiar with like the term presuppositions, there's a little bit like you're operating with all these presuppositions back here that you don't think through. Like when you guys were growing up, maybe, at least when I was growing up, uh, you never thought whether or not there was a male or female. There's just male and female. There were not 66. But kids growing up nowadays will have this category of maybe 66, maybe 100, whatever it may be. And so they're growing up and breathing this air that when they're getting to college campuses, they just assume. There's a bunch of different genders, and there's fluidity, and and even at this point, uh, last year when I was preaching up in Vermont, uh, they didn't even want me using the term homosexual anymore because it's too static, and they want to be queer because that way you can queer allows you to move around however you want to move, uh, whereas homosexuality is like a fixed identity, which in their heads were too modernist for them. So I just thought it was kind of fascinating. But there's a guy named Mark Sidwell who uh, wrote a book, and and, and uh, it's it's tied into this that so. If you're sitting there 100 years ago and you only have a Marxist revolution taking place in uh, largely uh, the Soviet Union and kind of the Eastern Bloc places, why is this happening in Europe? And what Gramsci basically concluded was it's the culture. So what you have to do is reorient the the culture. What we have to do is take over the culture. And then downstream, we can get the... Uh, then we can get our Marxist revolution on. But we, we have, we're, kind of, we're kind of tied uh, because of the reality of what, what the culture is. So he kind of came up with this idea of hegemony, and what you have to do is basically deconstruct this thing. And Mark Sidwell says this. A successful revolution, they claimed, uh, requires not just the seizure of political and economic power, but also conquest of the cultural sphere. Culture, everything from art and entertainment to religion and morality, social and sexual norms, is they argued a sort of factory, one that uh, mass produces consent for our, our political way of life. Therefore, to undermine free market capitalism in the West in favor of a socialist revolution, cultural Marxists called for a like-minded revolutionaries to seize the means of production, of cultural production. So think about that for a second. If 100 years ago you were poor laborer, what do you want to do? You want to seize the means of capitalism. You want to seize their production. Now they're saying what we have to do is seize cultural production. And so if you look at our culture... They seized all the means of production. They own Hollywood. Even the NBA right now is shut down because of uh, the you know, kind of social, political issues and stuff like that. And so the, this kind of leftist agenda, um, they have kind of taken over everything. And one of the ideas where they, uh, where this kind of came through, was a guy named uh, Rudy Dutschke, who in the in the late '60s, some of the communists were getting, they were. Reports of what was taking place in Russia began to spread, and a lot of these people did not want violent revolutions and that 's why uh, when nowadays all the Bernie people are like it 's not socialism it 's democratic socialism because I want to ensure you that they 're not these murderous types, but they want the end anyway and so uh, what Dutchke came up with was this idea of called the long march through the institutions and we kind of have a little bit of that mindset here that we want to go get jobs in Hollywood, that you want to write good books, we want to deconstruct things and kind of set the tempo in cultural production and so if you're listening, I think, to a lot of this stuff, you realize effectively uh, how it helps our culture or uh, affects our culture, but it's also something that we as Christians are seeking to do. But there's one other guy, I'll read this and then we'll wrap up to the Q&A. There's a guy named Herbert Marcuse, and he says, this is to guy, and he's one of these key, if you've ever heard of the Frankfurt School or critical theory, this guy's a key player to that. He says, uh, let me tell you this, that I regard your notion of the long march through the institutions as the only effective way. Um, he goes on to say to extend the base of the student movement uh, this is from a, his book Counter-Revolution Rudy Dutchke has proposed the strategy of the long march through the institutions working against the established institutions while working within them but not simply by boring from within rather by doing the job and so becoming pu- computer programmers and everything else so, it, so it, that's why oftentimes even in the church you're like why is that uber liberal even in the church because what do you have to do you take over the institutions including the church and so then you begin to permeate all of society and everything else and, and so uh, kind of just to wrap this up uh, So, yeah, kind of what is the Christian response to all this stuff? Because what I wanted to do was basically lay out the kind of where we are on the timeline and that you guys are now in a culture that has kind of the long march has been effective. And if you've – how many grew up in public schools? The, uh, yeah, and I, I think if we were, all of us who were in public school sat down with those of you who were not in public schools, you'd see a lot of different assumptions about the nature of things. So, I, Because what do they do? They, they run the government schools as well. And so even if you're a Christian teacher in a government school, uh, you're bumping in all, all, all that stuff. So Aaron and I will uh, turn it over to a QA and um, a So, yeah.
0: so um, we rushed through this, but what's bourgeoisie, proletariat, and means of production?
1: Okay, uh, the bourgeoisie is basically the people who own capital. And then the proletariat is basically the working class person. So if you don't own your truck to do your own work and you're hired to drive a truck, you're the proletariat. And so the proletariat is basically the middle class and the means of production is your your capital. And so they're the ones who, so the people with the capital get to control the proletariat. See, I'm not going to give you a job today. I won't give you a job. Someone else hops up. They'll work for a cheaper price. So that's, yeah, sorry, bourgeoisie and proletariat. So assuming, assuming I'm even saying bourgeoisie, right, it might be, I've always said bougie. Yeah. And that's right. think that's right. John? So are, are the people who are writing and doing all those sorts of things, thinking this is what I'm doing, is spreading this sort of Marxist idea, or is it more of a result of uh, that already having permeated the culture? Just a Okay. Good. Uh,
0: I think Jonah's question, for, if you didn't hear it, is kind of how self-conscious are these people who are doing take, doing this cultural takeover um, as they're doing it? Is that, okay.
1: I would say most aren't that self-conscious. They, they, they do have categories like equality, uh, justice, that they just kind of, you know, no justice, no peace. So they kind of have some categories that they place it in. But I don't think they know the end is going to be capitalism or Marxism or any some si- system in between. And one of the things that's kind of fascinating with amidst their takeover, we're, we're still, we have socialist elements to our economy. We're still pretty, we're, we're not a full tilt Marxist economy. So it's kind of fascinating. So you have your Bezos, who's like a billionaire, still kind of buying in and feeding this sort of stuff. So that's one of the things that's pretty fascinating with it. But um, yeah, so I don't think they're fully aware. Some of them are just, you know wicked sinners who are... But I think the people agitating are more self-conscious. Um, and that's what most revolutions are, is usually kind of an upper-tier educated class that gets the other people to do their bidding. So that's kind of where we're at.
0: Yeah, that's controlling the culture. So if I were to just say... I'll put it to you. So if I were to say, how many of you think that America is a capitalist country? Like, what would you say? Like, yeah, kind of... Yeah, in, g- in general, most people associate... Uh, capitalism with The, white, the whiteness right? It's a, capitalism is this oppressive power Structure And yet when you actually look at our culture And what a lot of them are asking uh, They want reform The areas they want reform in are not Capitalist, they're actually socialist So I'll give you an example uh, Government schools, that's socialism <laughs> It's run by The government, you don't even get to Choose whether you pay taxes or not To support that and they, they're saying, we need more, more money, we need to reform the schools. Well, they're the ones who actually own the schools. And then other examples of this would be things like uh, welfare and social security. So there's actually a lot of socialism in our country, at the same time that they're saying America is this capitalist nation that needs to be overthrown. Cool. So you were talking about, uh, you were kind of explaining the communist from his own perspective and encouraging us to see him from his own perspective. Um, And earlier on you were talking about the, I forget male or female, that was talking about the 66 genders, Mm -hmm. and you talk about that and we all laugh, but is there a benefit to trying, even even something so ridiculous as 66 genders, is there a benefit to try to uh, get into that person's shoes as well and understand it from the inside out, and if so, what is that benefit?
1: Yeah, do you want to repeat the question, or, or I'll just I think it was loud enough. Okay. Uh, the uh, I would say there's a huge benefit, even from an evangelism standpoint, um, that the person coming up to you who, and, and not so much. Uh, let me I get. Let me qualify this. The person who comes up to you who is Bruce Jenner and coming up to you saying, "No, I'm really a female," uh, you do want to enter into their, you know, not their philosophy where you jettison Christianity, um, but you want to enter into it like. Here's a real sinner coming before you, and whether they're an adulterer, whether they're a murderer, whether they're confused on their identity, um, I think that's a real condition that they have, um, and, it, and I don't think they're making it up. I th- and, uh, so even so Washington State, a lot of my stories will come from Washington State cause I preach there a lot but there was a, a young man, had, interesting enough, two weeks prior I was preaching to him, but it was her, you know, like, I, it was the first time I was interacting with a guy on campus that I thought was a female and was asking really good questions, I even thought the spirit was moving, I was like, wow, they're really humble and receptive, and what was interesting with it they asked me about the Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Thomas ends with how uh, women have to become men in the kingdom of God, I was like, how silly is the Gospel of Thomas, you need to become a man into the kingdom of God I was like, you are a man, so, uh, um, so two weeks later it comes up to me and we're interacting on it, and I kind of explained that, that... So it was kind of like if, if there was an eating disorder. So if someone comes up to you with an eating disorder, you can you, know, you can be like, okay, I can understand that. So I feel like you can understand someone coming up to you with some sort of body dysmorphia sort of thing. So I think it's important to understand... Uh, the 66, you just realize how arbitrary they are. So you have your intellectual class. It's just kind of completely arbitrary. But when you're dealing with a real person before you who is wrestling with those things, that's where you want to enter in more than the pseudo-intellectual person who's just arbitrarily picks 66 out of a hat and doesn't know how to respond to 67 or 65, so.
0: Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges for you is going to be knowing how should you spend your time right now argue, arguing with people. Uh, when you see something come across to your newsfeed and you're just like, that is so wrong, I don't even know where to start, is it worth your energy to to respond? And I, I agree, there's a time to try to say, okay, Help me understand what what your disagreement is, or why you think that. Um, and yet, right now, when there's a, a mob, <laughs> right when there's a riot, there's no reasoning with them. And you have to, I think, you, you need the spirit of God. That God is the one who changes hearts. You need to be walking, and keeping in step with the spirit and discerning when they actually have an ear to hear or the way Jim Wilson I think says it is when the, their eyes are open to even listening to you otherwise you are probably wasting your time and it would be better spent you know building up the body of Christ or finding the people who actually you have social capital with your friends your roommates family members that you disagree with do it with those people that you have real skin in the game with rather than the anonymous trolls who you, you, you have no idea, you'll never meet them in real life. Uh, one more question. Here. So, uh, an encounter I had uh, once was, uh, this this summer, uh, working at the fireworks booth that was by Rosars, this guy came up, obvious cross-dresser,
1: uh, real weird, and he asked if he would... Uh, If we would trade him some fireworks for a flower, he had, and thought he he even said like, oh, I thought I could work my feminine wiles on you, and I was caught off guard enough I didn't, (laughs) I did not have a chance to really uh, respond in the way that I should have. My brother even just ran away. So what? been a good thing to say or really should I should should I have mentioned something in in that context I just let it go um, <laughs> try, try give him a firework
0: yeah. yeah. the uh,
1: yeah I first tried just let it go you know what I mean like yeah yeah you're not going to have a substance conversation any right. rebuke is it's going to be met with the hateful Christian who yeah. you know rebukes the flower guy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and there's times,
0: so for those of you who've been around, and you've been at, say, the the Toxic Matriarchy event or whatever the last one we did was, Lost Virtue of Sexism. So there's certain people there who are there simply to express their angst. It's kind of a religious zeal they have. You see this also at when Doug gave the talk. They're not there to have a conversation with you. They're there to protest. They're, de- they're there to um, kind of Blow some steam off with their friends. And yet there's still a ton of really good opportunities for conversations. It's probably just not gonna be with those people. It's gonna be for the people who are kind of in the middle, they're probably not Christians, this is just the culture they're in. But there, there's something in them that's saying, like, this doesn't seem true, it doesn't seem right. The cool thing about being a Christian is you have reality on your side. <laughs> right? You have the truth on your side. And we'll get into this in future sessions, but as you're interacting with people, you can just ask them questions like, is that true? <laughs> is it true?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And a lot of times, that, you know, we can do the by what standard, you can get into all sorts of things, but you have the truth, and you should be seeking the truth, and shouldn't be afraid of the truth if all truth belongs to to God.
1: Yeah, and tie in with that, when I was mentioning the modernism and post-modernism thing, uh, you should. Be able to leverage your postmodernism when you're dealing with the modernists in a way. Because as Christians, we are saying, yeah, there is a universal Logos, it's, or it's a Logos, or what, what do you guys say around here? Uh, whatever you all say. Um, uh, but yeah, Jesus is, in John 1, 1 he's the Logos. And so he he backs the cosmos. So you do have a universal personal Logos that's backing the uh, universe. What you don't have is just a Uh, a materialist version or an enlightenment version of that. So, in that sense, we're kind of like the modernists in that we have this universal that is back in the cosmos, but we're also like the... Postmodernists, and that we want to critique the uh, modernists and see how they get to their universal logic and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and so, so that's where, like, if you're studying worldly philosophy, so to speak, uh, you can see where they're sharp and they play each other play uh, off of one another. But logic is just something that's inescapable. You can't, we could can, not The postmodernists can't talk. I can't talk. No one can talk without using logic. If all my words can mean they're opposite, we're done communicating. And I was at Colorado State. I think it was the same time with the kid with the. Drink um, the Frappuccino. He uh, uh, there was a lady there who uh, was complaining. I was, uh, I think, way too much like a Westerner. I was a white Western male. I'm, you thinking way too much like a Westerner. And I was like, so you're telling me, and I, I'm too binary. That's always the word I hear. Binary. You're too binary. And you're thinking. I was like, so you're telling me I can either think your way or my way. She goes, that's right. I was like, and, that, and that's not a binary. She goes, oh, you don't get it. <laughs> I, maybe I don't, but uh, you know, it, that, that sort of thinking is inescapable, so you should feel comfortable utilizing it um, in your life because that's the way the Lord has made us, to be reasonable creatures. Uh, that's not the only thing you need to talk yeah.
0: Well, with that, why don't we uh, pause there. Let's stand, sing the doxology, and then uh, Matt will come up and give a couple announcements.